Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. This week, we discuss the infamous Shadow Brokers, a group or individual hacker who compromised the NSA back in 2016. We explore and explain this hack from the perspective of a former FBI agent and a former black hat hacker. We also detail Apple's new security posture, deploying end-to-end encryption. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. Joined, as always, by Hector Monsiger, friend and podcast co-host, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you? I'm doing well, my friend. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Really great episode this week on Hacker in the Fed. We're going to talk about the Shadow Brokers, a group that hacked into the NSA and released NSA hacking tools. We're also going to talk about Apple's newest security feature, end-to-end encryptions for your data backups. Wow, sounds spooky. Ooh! It's a wordplay, right? It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't even get that. <laughs> Come on, brother. Come on. How's it going, Hector? Pretty good, brother. Pretty good. Just hanging out there, you know, hanging out. You ready to go through some cybersecurity again today? Oh, yeah. Let's nerd it out. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's talk about some nerdy stuff. And so I think we got a couple of exciting things to talk about. Uh, so last week we did an episode and we answered uh, some user questions and we saw that there was uh, Ulf in Sweden wrote in and he kind of wanted us to go through and talk about our opinions on the shadow brokers. Ooh. Uh, yeah, big hacking thing uh, a few years ago. And so that kind of inspired us to uh, kind of like go through this and dig through the shadow brokers a little bit um, because probably some people in the audience don't really know who they are and what happened and uh what came from it? Can you uh, kind of give us a little background on the Shadow Brokers? Yeah. So the Shadow Brokers was an interesting uh, group. It might have been one person. It could have been multiple folks involved. They came around on Twitter posting that they had compromised um, the NSA or um, the TAL, Taylor Access um, Operations Group which is a unit out of the NSA. Uh-huh. All right. Whoa, whoa. You're going way too fast. You're okay. way too fast. So let's slow this down a little for the audience, Hector. Sure. Let's go. The Shadow Brokers. This is a hacking group. Showed up, like you said, in Twitter. And they, they said they got into the NSA or the United States National Security Agency. That's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And depending on you ask, is there no such agency. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so they're... The premise behind their posts was that they had compromised elements of the NSA um, or at the very least accessed uh, some of their toolkits or some of their tools, exploits, frameworks, etc. I would say in the beginning, folks were a bit skeptical until they started posting exploits or screenshots. They had a pace spin introduction to, to the compromise. 
Um, and it became a fiasco. It became a very public fiasco right around 2016, which was already a pretty intense year. Yeah, 2016, there was a lot of hacks in the news that day and things going on. And so we have this group, they call themselves the Shadow Brokers, and they proclaimed that they had broken into the the National Security Agency. This is like the premier like spy group inside the United States. And they said that they had access what's called what was being called the Equation Group, named inside, what kind of led to believe people to believe this was NSA's tailored access operations unit. Uh, these were the the more the offensive guys in the NSA, the guys that went out and hacked. Um, so the shadow brokers are saying that they got their tools uh, and, and and went on Twitter and started talking about them. Yeah, well, that that's that's pretty much the premise, right? That's the that's the main idea. It's hard to speculate as to what the goals of the group was, whether it was an, it was to embarrass the NSA, embarrass the United States, um, maybe to cause an uproar in the uh, infosec community. But whatever it was, uh, it definitely worked. Uh, there were some terrible consequences as a result of the leaks, the consequence leaks um, that uh, that followed, right? Or the leaks that followed. It was interesting because it was kind of the first time that anyone got to see the kind of tools that the NSA was using. Well, let me take it back a bit. Let me give you guys some history here. There was a leak in 2013 uh, that was published by, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this terribly, I apologize to the German audience, but Der Spiegel had published an article that contains the ANT um, catalog, which is supposedly what the NSA was kind of pushing out to other agencies. Like, hey, here's what we have available. Here's what it may cost to develop. Um, then ANT, by the way, could stand many different, it, it could stand for many different things. Um, some say it was advanced network techniques, um, but there's no clear indication as to what ANT really stands for. And in there, in that leak, what you had was a list of potential tools, uh, possible techniques and hardware implants and so on that the NSA may be using um, according to the document. So we had some idea as to the capabilities of the of the unit or the agency uh, or the agency's unit. but when shadow brokers came online and started leaking this stuff, it was the first time we actually got to see it, uh, specifically the exploits and how they worked. Do you remember any of the specific exploits that were available? Well, I mean, the big one was Eternal Blue, right? Eternal Blue um, was the big one, and uh, well, you know well, it, that led to a lot of different things. Oh yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of like the precursor to you know, WannaCry and, uh, you know, a bunch of other uh, ransomware and, and you know, botnets and stuff that happened afterwards or, or that, that took advantage of the vulnerability. And, yeah, I mean, untold consequences as a result of those leaks, for sure. I also remember there was some sort of, like, uh, a zero day into, like, Samsung TVs. Uh, <laughs> there was kind of a hack into TVs that were connected to the internet. Do you remember that one? I believe so. The, the ones that were, were most interesting to me were some of the older stuff. Like I even found exploration there for Solaris and and other Unix systems, which I uh, I played around with or you know disassembled or you know just screwed around with. But the, the reality is that yeah, they had a large list of exploits for different sorts of vulnerabilities. It wasn't it wasn't like a specific category, I guess. 
which was quite daunting when you think about it. So the first contact that these guys made, the the shadow brokers made, was on August 13th of 2016. They sent out a, a, a Twitter from, you know, at shadow brokers with an extra S on the end, announcing that there was a paste-in page in a GitHub repository uh, for their hacks. Uh, did that get a lot of traction in the cybersecurity world at that time, or did it kind of go unnoticed? No, it got some traction. People people started to discuss it. You know, the pastebin was published, and there was a couple of things up in the air. I don't think that it really blew up until the media started picking it up. That's when you saw, like, the general audience, you know, getting a whiff of what was happening. But in terms of, like, the InfoSec community, like InfoSec Twitter, for example, they started to, you know, to kind of look at what was being said look at that first exploit that was released, um, take a look at the screenshots, and now there was a lot of inner chatter, right? Internal chatter within security companies and then all sorts of different organizations. So to answer your question, in a way, yeah, um, but it wasn't really as big as, a, as a, of, of an uproar or interest didn't really pop until journalists started writing about it. So one of the things on that that first uh, announcement to the world by the shadow brokers that interests me as you know law enforcement is that they would use U.S. infrastructure, a.k.a. Twitter, uh, to announce the hack of the NSA. Um, they, they have to be accessing their Twitter account in some sort of a way, and they know that it's part of U.S. Uh, infrastructure. Do you think that's a mess up on their side, or is that some sort of false flag? What do you see that as? That is such a hard one to to really gauge, brother. I tell you, they use Twitter for the initial announcements. They use GitHub to post some exploits. They use Pastebin. Basically, these are all sites within the arms of the law, right? Well, the, the U.S. law. I mean, they're they're essentially attacking you know a very big entity in the United States, and they're using U.S. infrastructure to make the announcement. Well, they were either very stupid or very smart, right? I mean. You know, smart enough to, to to protect their operational and personal security. They knew that if the Twitter account got subpoenaed or GitHub or whatever, it probably would lead to a dead end. Maybe it would lead to an IP that, uh, you know, would surprise law enforcement, right? Maybe it was a, a server in the FBI itself that was posting those tweets. You know, the reality is, is that these guys very well knew the risks. I'm hoping. Um well, it seems that way anyway, because you know they, they haven't been arrested as far as we know, right? Well, spoiler alert, you're getting to the end of our story. Oh, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a hacker, is that something that you would intentionally do? Would you, uh, you know, let's say you personally, or if you were advising a hacking group, would you want to taunt the U.S. by using U.S. infrastructure to announce this major hack uh, of a U.S. entity? Well, unfortunately, during my time as as a very uh, public black hat, I did exactly that. I think the difference with me is that I, I knew eventually I was going to get caught. So my operational security was not the best. Um, but yeah, we did the same thing during that whole LOSEC era where we were posting manifestos or press releases on Twitter, you know, and it, it was all, you know, hey, fuck the FBI. And by the way, you know, we're posting this on Twitter and come get us if you want. I mean, that's basically what it was. Um what I found more interesting, and I think this is what you're, you're kind of getting to, is their first posts uh, were made in very, very broken English. And so attribution becomes much more difficult. I think that, you know, speaking with some friends, especially friends that work in Intel, they had a hunch that it wasn't a foreign actor. You know, they had a hunch just by the writing it was very obvious to be like a, maybe an American or British citizen uh, making these posts. 
which if that was the case, then it changes it changes a lot of the theories behind why they were doing what they were doing, right? I think we're going to pick at that. I think as we go through and see all the posts as we go through this, let, let's let's try to decide whether that's an American or someone trying to make us think we're American. Let's just kind of keep track of that. That's sort of, you know, my investigative mindset when it goes through. But even in this first post, they they put that they, they quote, unquote, we auctioned the best files to the highest bidder. Um, and then they put a Bitcoin address and they want people to, you know, send Bitcoins to, to send this, this file over. Um, I mean, just that alone, the, that first line in it, it says we auction best files to highest bidder. That's not proper English, you know? So is it intentionally not bad English or is it Google translate? You know? So it's, it's interesting to try to, let's try to keep track of this as we go through. So you have to remember during that, during that low sec run, especially towards the end, I was, Starting to, or I would I would actually tweet in in German. In fact, it was it was very specific German, German from from Austria. Do you know German? I know a little bit. Oh, enough to have conversations as someone that would believe that you spoke German? No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so I actually had a very good friend that uh, that spoke you know German naturally, and they uh, they helped me craft these these messages. What about using the powerful tool of Google Translate? Did you ever? use like take write something in english translate it to another language and then put it back in as that language and translate it back just so it would be like broken english i wouldn't do that because i wanted people oh. to think that i was german or okay somewhat related to german i wanted folks to think that i was you know not american so i would use uh, a, a real human resource to help me translate rather than google translate because you know as good as of a service as it is it still is going to produce, for the most part, broken, you know, syntax. Um, and in this case, the person or persons involved use broken English. Um, and I think that may have been on purpose. You think they they dumbed it down. All right. Well, we're just in the first message. So let's see what else we can get. Yep. Then the second message comes out and it comes out on October 31st, 2016. And they label it message number five, trick or treat. So is Trick or Treat on a Halloween, on, published on, on, on October 31st, is that just an American thing or is that, is that an international thing? Or is that being used to throw us off to make us think they know, that, think it's an American thing? Well, that's a great question. I think that, in my personal opinion, it was someone, um, I mean, it could be you know, both ways, right? It could be someone that knew or that knows enough about American culture to know that Halloween is is, is uh, heavily celebrated here. I don't think it's heavily celebrated anywhere else. I could be wrong, um, but here in the U.S., like a big thing. So yeah, I think I think that's probably you know if if that's the route, if the attacker is foreign and they knew enough about American culture, then yeah, they would post something like "Hey, trick or treat." Otherwise, if it's an American uh, pretending to be Russian and saying "trick or treat," then I don't know. I mean, that, that could be problematic for their personal security. I mean, it's, it's a tough one, right? Attribution is always going to be an issue, especially in these situations. And then the third leak comes out and it says it comes out and labels itself Black Friday slash Cyber Monday sale. That is specifically a U.S. thing. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. So, yeah, I mean, to me, you know, using U.S. infrastructure and using all this like broken English that really isn't broken English and then knowing these things, you know, we're, to me, we're up to the third leak and it's already pointing towards somebody that is either American or really wants us to think they're American, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Let's keep going. 
So then the fourth leaks comes out and it's labeled "Don't Forget Your Base." Uh, does that mean anything to you? Well, at first I thought it was a reference to Zero Wing, the video game, where it's 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 I would say almost comical. Some of the translations. Um, there was one translation in particular that said, "All your base belong to us," and people made people actually made memes out of it. Some of the, in fact, some of the earliest internet memes was based around that. Uh, uh, the bad translations. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, again, I think the the shadow brokers are, are really trying to point us in a direction, you know, kind of mislead us into thinking their their knowledge on on, uh, on pop culture, or they're just trolling the shit out of us. Um, but in this leak, particularly, they they explicitly stated that the post was in response to President Trump's attack on a Syrian airfield, uh, which was also used uh, by Russian forces. When a hacking group kind of like really puts their finger down and says, this is exactly why we did it. It reminds me back in the Lulsec days, what, that was bullshit. They just kind of found an excuse, right? I mean, what, what's the logic behind that in a hacking group? Like something comes out in the media and they say, oh, we hacked into this because of this. But really you had hacked into that months before and only because it, you were had the opportunity to, right? Yeah, I mean, look, during the Lulsec era, the one thing that folks you know really don't know or Maybe they know, but, you know, they haven't really heard, you know, some more details about it is that, yes, we would compromise certain sites or, um, you know, web applications or whatever that belongs to something. And then we'll sit on it. And if there's a relevant story or we want to do a media spin, and then we would do a release around that. I'll give you a good example. I know that at some point we did a release for it was it was the dumbest possible thing like there was no it, it was not even a real compromise i think we did a we did a sql injection of one host that gave us a list of atms around united kingdom or something or some some random place and so we were like yeah so now hey look guess what you guys are hacked and i'm sure that i'm sure the security engineers shitted themselves that day but the truth is that yeah no we just kind of went with what we had i think that if if uh if i'm following you right then that's probably what happened here, you know, if 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 that's the case. Um, they had something to release. They saw some something in the news. They, they kind of connected them together. So up until this point, and I probably got lost in mentioning this, the dumps that they were putting out there were encrypted. Um, and they were encrypted with a password that was 31 characters long that had, you know, 12 different uh, special characters, uppercase, lowercase, a very strong password that at Hacker and the Fed, we highly recommend using a, a password of such strength. But then during the, the sixth leak, sorry, excuse me, the fifth leak on April 14th, 2017, labeled loss in translation, they put out a message in a leaked files and they used the password capital R and then 14 E, lowercase E's. Really changing the password here. I don't really see, you know, uh, from an investigative standpoint, I'm not quite sure why they changed it. So from such a difficult password to this new easy password, um, but, you know, kind of weird. Yeah, it is weird. But still, you know, I kind of in a funny way, um, depending on the password cracker that you've built or are using, even if you knew the password is 30, 31 characters plus, right? And you try to crack the password, you know, and if you're brute forcing, that would still take a long time, even if it's like a R and a bunch of E's, 30 E's, right? Brute forcing that password still would have taken quite some time. So, yes, it's not a good password. It's terrible. But it, it is weird or it is interesting how they use that as a password. It might be a reference to like a meme, you know? Yeah, 
I, you, like you said, you think it's funny. It's reminded me of Losek. I mean, they, as we're now up to the fifth leak, they're trolling us. They're trolling us for some reason, but they're they're putting out some crazy, crazy exploit. And this fifth leak that we're talking about with this easy password, uh, that's where Internal Blue came from. Well, I, I could assure you I was not involved in this at all whatsoever. Oh, um, yeah, we should say from the very beginning, we neither one of us was ever involved in this. <laughs> we do not have inside information. This is us just reading about it and putting our two cents on things. Exactly. <laughs> but yes, you know, by that fifth leak, that, that's when things started to get become rather more serious. Uh, you know, the kind of exploits that were being released you know, they, they would cause uh, so much damage and so much, uh, uh, they would also raise a ton of ridicule, right? You know, things like, well, is this an exploit that was known and sold, right? Uh, on a, like a, on a, a exploit marketplace or something. Once that release happened, yes, you had ransomware. Yes, you had all sorts of, of bad things happening. But you also had a lot of very serious conversations about the the consequences of, of weaponizing vulnerabilities. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just just after this fifth leak, when Eternal Blue came out, two hundred thousand machines are infected within the first two weeks. Um, the Ukrainian banking software came down that time. It was pretty bad right around then. But one of the weird things about that fifth uh, that fifth leak was that again, it was put out on April fourteenth, two thousand seventeen. And a lot of the exploits were targeting Windows operating systems. Um, Windows had put out a patch for most of these vulnerabilities exactly one month before, March 14, 2007. So one month prior to this exploit that would devastate Microsoft, they had patched it all. What do you think about that? If the attribution made by shadow brokers is correct, which seems to be the thing, which seems to be the case, sorry, um, then maybe someone at the NSA was like, well, I think we need to patch some of these issues. Oh, you think they took some of the stuff to Microsoft and said, hey, we had these exploits and you should probably, you should think about patching them? I think so. Now, the problem I have with that, though, is if these guys, these shadow brokers, had access to this as far back as August 13th of 2016, mm-hmm. why did they not release the major Microsoft ones until April 14th of 2017 and give... NSA all that time to go to Microsoft and say you guys should patch these things. So this is where this is where we start to speculate hard. Oh, if I yeah, were, all speculation. But, but also, yeah, I want to know what your opinion, your speculation is. Yeah. So my opinion on the matter is that maybe these guys were American. Maybe they were even part of the security industry. Uh, maybe they did not align with the NSA or the TAO. Uh, the Taylor Access uh, uh, operations, or now known as the Computer Network operations, um, maybe they were like, "Okay, we need to fix these things, um, and we're going to cause a little bit of ruckus in, or- in order to get these things fixed." Um, but we don't want to cause complete chaos just yet. So that's that would be my opinion. If if that's if that's the case, then okay, that makes a lot more sense to me. But you're right. If these were Russian actors and they wanted to completely cause mayhem across U.S. infrastructure, they could have dumped Eternal Blue from day one. Yeah, long before that Microsoft had a chance to patch this stuff. So, again, I have no idea who did this. It's only Hector and I are just making speculations on this. But, you know, hack into a major NSA or a leak or a hack or whatever you want to call it, a major NSA, you know, cyber weapons. Then they start using... U.S. infrastructure. Then they start making messages that talk about, you know, Halloween, talk about Black Friday, talk about Cyber Monday. 
Um, they make some memes to cartoons. Then they then they do the typical hacker thing and point their finger in the other direction and say this is a direct reaction to Trump's attack in the Syrian airfield. And then have these exploits that could take down Microsoft at any point, but release re- only release them one month after Microsoft fixed most of them. It's just there's too many coincidences there. And this is why I think that that the motivation in regards to the attack on the Syrian base. This is why I think that assuming or making the attribution that these guys are Russian is bullshit, okay? Um, Don't you think that the Kremlin would have loved to have had these exploits um, at their disposal? I mean, theoretically, they could have sat on that for the next two, three years and took advantage of every vulnerable host out there before, um, you know, before or until... A security company came out with a, a, a data breach report, or incident response report, and started patching these things up. I mean, that's my take on it. I, I really don't think that these people were probably nation state aligned. Yeah, I mean, just as value. Well, they might have been nation state, but our nation, you know, just as valuable as these tools are to the NSA, uh, they would have been just as valuable to the Russians. And uh, yeah, the Russians wouldn't have come out there and started releasing things. There's no reason to it. I mean. All these little things that we've gone through and talked about points to some insider who, you know, kind of like a Snowden, an insider that didn't think it was cool that we're weaponizing, uh, you know, exploits like this. Sort of the feelings you have. Mm, I'm a little suspicious. So I think the the question that a lot of folks have regarding shadow brokers and that whole situation is, have they been caught? Have the actors been caught in any way? Well, the short answer is no. We could be a little bit more verbose and say that, well, we don't really know. Yeah, we don't know if they've been caught. I mean, things have, things might have happened that are, are behind the scenes that we wouldn't know about. Absolutely. And so, you know, the best thing we could do is tell you no, as far as, as, far as we know. Um, but we don't really know what has happened in the background. The NSA, unfortunately, has had to deal with, uh, you know, a, a number of breaches or if not even breaches, leaks um, over the last decade. In fact, there was there was two that was very interesting, Chris. Um, there was one where a contractor was arrested, Harold Martin. He had been arrested for exfiltrating something like 50 terabytes of classified or confidential data. Um, sensitive documentation that probably should not have been or left uh, the premises um, of uh, of the boundaries within the NSA. Right? He probably had the biggest. If you want to, if you want to make an attribution as to who had the, who may, probably made the biggest leak within the NSA, it probably is this guy. Didn't they find all his stuff like in a shed out behind his house? In a shed, in his home, in his car, the glove box. The but here's the thing with him. He wasn't charged with treason. He wasn't hit with the Espionage Act. The reasoning behind that is that they feel like he had mental health issues. They don't necessarily think that he stole this data or information for the purpose of selling it, trading it, or doing any leaks. Um, well, he. Well, I mean, I saw. I'll, I'll correct you a little there. So yeah. they don't not charge someone for treason because it because of a mental issue or whatever it is. I mean, that's decided by the court and all that. But he did not make an overt act in order to try to sell this to a non-U.S. person. 
which which is required for the espionage. Oh yeah, and and you know what? Thank you for for that addition there because that's that's hundred percent true. Uh, as far as far as what we could see in the court documents and sentencing, yes, he exfiltrated a ton of data, and it, he was arrested around the time that shadow brokers started to launch. The one thing they talk about is that that. There were some uh, postings or some messages made by the shadow brokers that were cryptographically signed um, by the same guys, uh, and they were interviewed by media at around the same time, but while he was in jail. So, but, you know, which would just pose to mean that there's more than one person. I mean, uh, you know, Lulsec wasn't one person, so, you know, I don't think anything this big is ever just one person. I don't think the shadow brokers could be just one person. So maybe Martin was a part of them, but. But again, he, you know, they say maybe he wasn't because he was in jail during the, these messages that went out. Sure, 100%. Well, it just so happens that around the same exact time, there was another agent uh, or another um, a contractor that had gone down uh, for the same exact thing as Mr. Martin. Um, exfiltration of sensitive documents, classified information. Um, he's in prison as well. I can't pronounce his first name. Uh, we'll just call him Mr. Foe. But yeah, he was also hit up for doing the exact same thing. Again, he wasn't hit with the Espionage Act. He wasn't hit for treason. And I guess it's because of the same reason that you uh, you defined earlier. Oh, that he didn't make an overt act? They just caught him having the documents? That's correct. As far as we could see from the court documents and so on. And then, of course, it's the final. Uh, there, there, there were other cases, other notable cases. But just for the sake of uh, of brevity... The final case is, is that is, you know, it was documented and published as recent as September of this year. You had a, a, a scenario where you had uh, a gentleman by the name of Jara, Jara, Doc. Uh, I know I'm mispronouncing his name. He was also a contractor and he was actually, and this is a big differentiator. He was actually trying to sell the classified information. He is, in fact, hit with the Espionage Act and he is facing death. Oh, the death penalty. Yeah, his mistake is he he reached out to what he thought was it the Russian uh, SVR, the the Russians Foreign Intelligence Service. Uh, unfortunately for uh, for him, he was actually talking to an undercover FBI agent. Yeah, ouch. Yeah, that's <laughs> gonna get you every time. It is. <laughs> well, that that brings me on to something. I, I do have a question, it's unrelated to this. Sure. But how does that happen? Like, okay, I know the FBI, you guys. You guys have and had uh, a broad a broad network. You know, you, you guys work with all sorts of people. But can you theorize? I know, you, I know, I know. You you know, you didn't work in this case, but can you theorize or speculate or speculate as to how this random ass uh, NSA contractor randomly ran into an FBI agent? Like, how? Can any ideas? Can I answer your question by asking you a question? Sure. Let's say you're not, you know, the great Sabu and knows how the internet really works and all that. And you're, you know, just kind of a guy who in his mindset is willing to uh, disgrace and undermine his, his, uh, his country. Um, how would you find a Russian SVR agent online? Would I have uh, technical prowess? Uh, more than the average person, but you're not, again, you're not Sabu. So if I'm not Sabu and I have somewhat technical skills and I do have some experience on the internet that I would probably, and this is terrible, but I would probably try to reach out on Russian networks like VK and try to find anyone that's wearing a, a, a fucking uniform. Like, hey, by the way, I have some stuff here for sale. 
Um, I know that's terrible. <laughs> so let me ask you, do you think do you think maybe an FBI agent would have that same thought and then sit on those networks and hope someone would approach? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think it's it's not hard to figure out that maybe this guy, maybe he didn't even have the, the wherewithal to reach out. And again, not worked on this case, don't know anything about it. Maybe he Googled Russian, you know, SVR and he found some forums or something like that. Um, you know, these forums will take you down every time. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense for sure. But also there's a lot of, you know, you know, you should know this. There's a lot of like people that, you know, help out the FBI or sources for the FBI. And maybe this guy starts talking to them and and then, you know, these people know to kind of push. To, uh, if you, if anybody ever comes to you and asks you about this sort of stuff, just send them over to this username and they'll start talking to them. So, you know, it's and I and I can tell you for a fact, it's there's not just one FBI online. Uh, there's probably two at least. So <laughs> that's what they're out here looking for. And, you know, and, you know, so this guy did have, he was a former employee of, of national security agencies, maybe part of their, you know, offboarding process is you kind of monitor their online names, you know, cause these guys did have access and who knows what sort of access this guy had when he was in the NSA. Maybe he was a suspect in the, in the shadow brokers and they've been monitoring him ever since. That's true. That's a very good point. You know, we don't we don't know any of this stuff, you know, but he happened to go online. He wanted to sell his secrets to uh, the Russians and he started talking to an FBI agent. You know, there's not a lot very hard to connect those dots on on, on either, you know, someone pointing him in the right direction. He's a total jackass and went the wrong direction or they were testing him and he failed. Yeah, no, I mean, the guy, the guy, the guy definitely made a huge blunder and a mistake. I mean, this is oof. Well, he made a huge blunder and a huge mistake when he decided to sell national secrets to somebody else or to steal them. That's his huge fucking blunder. That's why we have treason. There's only one crime in the Constitution, and it's treason. Well, he, he really jumped out the window with that one. And, you know, the, to be honest with you, like, I totally understand where you're coming from. I know, I know at least from my case, there, there were a lot of people that weren't even informants um, or had been arrested that were providing information about me to the FBI. So, yeah, I, I completely understand um, how, you know, he could have been just been talking to a buddy online and the buddy was like, uh, I think I'm going to have to forward this to the feds because I don't want, I don't want this uh, association. Right. Case in point, if some idiot comes to me and they're like, Hey, I'm about to blow up a bridge. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to call you probably within that first minute. So, I mean, it is what it is. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Now I don't want to be necessarily in the middle, but I will call, uh, some of my buddies and they will take care of that quickly. So, uh, please get a hold of me, and I have no problem trying to stop a bridge from being blown up. There you go. All right. So I guess my final opinion on this, Chris, um, is that you know attribution is difficult. It's difficult for anybody. If you were on the other side, as let's say law enforcement, or even as like a security researcher, there's a lot of things that you can do to try to make uh, attribution, to try to make connections, to find correlations. But the reality is you're never going to have that concrete answer. For example, I just want to give one good example here, Chris, before we kind of wrap up on my opinion. And that is that, you know, going back to the equation group, the assumption is that the equation group equals NSA. They are the NSA, right? But when you look at Kapersky, Kapersky Labs kind of like report on the equation group. In fact, I think they coined the name or maybe someone else did. No, I think they started it. Yeah, it was Kaspersky. Gotcha. Okay. 
So whether, uh, it, it, by the way, you look at Kapersky Labs report on Equation Group, and then of course the subsequent reports. Um, some, uh, I would say, some of the opinions is that at least that I've seen is that Equation Group not, wasn't necessarily the NSA. The Equation Group was the NSA's tools and their exploits. Um, you know, some reports even indicate that there may be sixty plus actors involved. Are those 60-plus operators, right? Or are those 60-plus partners, okay? Now, that could mean anything. So um, so attribution becomes difficult even for security researchers and law enforcement. I don't think we would ever know who the shadow brokers were until, you know, we find out later on they were arrested or they were insiders. And that's my point. I think there's some investigative stuff, and I think the the FBI uh, has certainly done stuff to it, you know, to get some information. Uh, one of the things I would check is uh, their Bitcoin uh, address that they published. You know, um, I'm looking at it right now. On the they had funds, they have Bitcoin coming in as late as uh, August 24th of 22. So it may just be trolls, you know, sending small, you know, little bits of Bitcoin, but. Um, you know, that's something certainly to look at. Someone saw 0.8 uh, Bitcoin sent it in May, uh, February of 22. So I don't know. That's it. I, I'm sure. I am sure someone is monitoring that address and seeing what they can find out. But uh, but it's interesting. So, and again, the, you know, the Twitter account and all that, you know, there's stuff to look at. And I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did a great job going through it. And hopefully someone behind the scenes was, uh, you know, uh, somehow figured out how they did this and stopped it and all that. So, but, you know, it just seems surprising to me that even, you know, in 2016, there was really good access controls and logging. I can't imagine they can't figure out the people that had access to this, these uh, tools and, 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 you know, all of them and, and, and kept track of that. But, oh, yeah, I guess we'll find out later on once they release the files on, uh, on the JFK assassination. And <laughs> <laughs> we're going to long wait 75 years from now. We'll learn or we'll learn about the shadow brokers and what happened. There you go. <laughs> wait, hold on a second. Hold on a fucking second. Yeah. What if what if Shadow Brokers was a dark operation by insiders at the NSA who wanted access to new exploits, and so they burned the old exploits to, <laughs> to <laughs> a busted, pissed off NSA exploit uh, hackers. They're like, shit, we want new tools. We got to burn all these. Yeah, we, we we need to justify our budget. There you go. Maybe, maybe that's certainly a theory. I don't, I don't know. It might not hold a lot of water, but we'll see. <laughs> so, Hector, Apple's releasing some new security soon. Have you, do you taken a look at this yet? Yeah, it's been, it's been all the craze amongst media and different stories out there, different, different uh, uh, groups of people just talking and, and chatting about it. It's uh, interesting. Yeah, a listener of ours, a listener of Hacker and the Fed, Roman, actually sent us an email right before we started recording, and we were already going to talk about this. And you know, Roman just wanted to know, just wanted to tell us about Apple announcing end-to-end encryption for iOS sixteen point two, uh, and kind of see uh, what what our thoughts on are on it. So let's uh, let's kind of talk about what it is uh, and uh, get our thoughts on from. I think it'll be two different perspectives on this one. I believe so. I, uh, I I think that, you know, I, I think that's what makes this podcast really uh, cool to listen to because I'm looking at it from a user end. And I know that you have perspective as a law enforcement officer, a former. Um, so we, I think we might differ a bit on this topic. So 
Apple is releasing in this new update to the software end-to-end encryption, uh, meaning that that your iCloud backups for everything except for mail, contacts, and calendars are all going to be encrypted on their cloud, uh, and the only way to unlock it are the keys that are on the device. Uh, so uh, it's going to kind of end that that reputation that that Apple can unlock your backups. Oh yeah, I mean that, that that kind of it ends a lot of speculation on that, right? And it also makes it much more difficult for uh, law enforcement to, to just put in a subpoena and say, "Hey, we need to check this person's account and look at look at look through the data." I'm assuming that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem, but it also it makes your information that sits on Apple um, less vulnerable to data breaches. So uh, you know the iCloud hacks that we had back in the day with all the uh, Hollywood people uh, sharing their nudes. Um, you know, I think, you know, that that's going to be taken care of and also Apple employees, you know, you don't have to worry about Apple employees having access or, you know, manipulating or, or doing anything to your data because it's just an encrypted blob on their server where it needs either your iPhone or your iPad to actually get into things. So with Apple's new E2EE protection, uh, Hector, that you're going to need either the device password, uh, uh, your your password, or recover contact and a personal recovery key to get your data back off. That means Apple cannot get to this data in any sort of way. So, you know, it's a step in the right direction for people protecting their, their information and protecting their data from, again, data breaches, law enforcement, and even, you know, internal Apple Apple access. But, you know, there's this one thing that I, I really want to point out, and, you know, I may have mentioned this before, and that is that regardless of encryption or not, you always want to make sure that whatever data you're willing to store on someone else's servers, uh, you know, is data that you're, you're willing to risk having someone else access. You, you can apply the same with Bitcoin, right? If you purchase Bitcoin or any sort of crypto coin or, or asset, if you store it on someone else's, you know, hot wallet, you run the risk of someone accessing those, you know, crypto, right? The crypto, like in an exchange, you're talking about. I'm talking about an exchange, absolutely. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm just giving an example here that, um, you know, if you really value your privacy, maybe storing your data on someone else's systems is, is probably not the route you want to go. No, but it is convenient. I mean, again, you know, if you when you buy a new iPhone, you know, to just sign in with your Apple ID and all your information just comes to the iPhone. You know, you have a, you know, a, a brand new, you know, device, but it, it looks just like your old one and has the same access. And, you know, for, for usability, I can understand why people do it. Oh yeah. No, I, I completely, I get that. And I, I do it myself. Right. Uh, I do synchronize my phones or whatever. And, and that's totally fine. I get it. But you know, there's, there's a lot of folks out there that are very, very conscious about their privacy and I'm not really sure that, you know, some of them have done the research to know that, um, that yeah, privacy is extremely important to you. Um, but, you know, storing your data on someone else's systems is always going to be a, a risky endeavor for you. Um, encrypted or not, that's my point. I think this move to the encrypted iCloud backups, uh, I really do think, well, it is going to be you know harder for law enforcement and harder for data breaches. I really think it's a reaction to people saying that Apple has access to your data. Um, because, you know, a little while ago, maybe I think it was a couple of years ago, Apple came out with this sort of idea that it, you know, it was very controversial that they were going to start scanning through your messages for child sexual abuse material. 
Um, you know, and, and they were going to look for those pictures. They, along with coming out with this iCloud backup stuff, they said, you know, we're abandoning that. Then, and their, you know, sort of message was said, you know, child sexual abuse can be headed off before it occurs. That's where we're going to be putting our energy going forward. So they're they're not going through your stuff. They don't want to go through your stuff. It seems that way. That's sort of the message they're putting out here. And I think that's kind of why they're going this way. Um, I don't think it's necessarily to make it harder for law enforcement. Um, they're just making it kind of to fit into today's society of people not wanting, you know, big data to go through their stuff. Yeah, no, I get that. You know, especially now that, I mean, maybe if we had this conversation 10 years ago, um, it would be much more controversial. But you have to remember, since then, we've had protocols like Signal, right? So protocols and, and uh, applications like Signal. You had WhatsApp and, and all sorts of different applications uh, providing end-to-end encryption. Telegram, for example, uh, they're offering end-to-end encryption with uh, the opportunity for you not to uh, connect your cell phone number to this service anymore, Right. Um, so yeah, so there's definitely a big shift towards privacy and end-to-end encryption, which I think is fantastic. As someone that appreciates privacy, yeah, uh, I'm for it. But the the question I would have for you is: now you know you're a former FBI agent, are you more aligned with the consumers at this point, or do you still feel you know that maybe you know these companies should have or provide access to law enforcement to get access to data that might be that might belong to terrorists or pedophiles or whatever? So that's an emotional response, you know, whether we should put back doors in these phones because of, you know, child exploitation, um, sex trafficking and, and terrorists. I mean, uh, who, who can possibly say, you know, all oh, those are things that we, we, we shouldn't, you know, be going after. So it, it's, it, it's difficult for me to say, you know, you know, putting a back door in, in someone's technology for those things. No, we shouldn't do that. Um, but I, I do believe that we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't force a company to have a back door. Um, we shouldn't force these things, uh, to, to, you know, to, put vulnerabilities in, in our own security uh, because of these other bad things. Um, will this make it harder? Yes. But, you know, law enforcement needs to step up and, and address those issues, uh, realizing it's going to be harder. Wow. You know, that, that's such a great answer. I'll be honest with you. Like, I thought in the beginning of this conversation, and, and it's not because I, I, uh, I have any specific opinion of you, right? But I know that you've been in law enforcement for quite some time. I actually thought that you and I were kind of we're going to deviate uh, in opinion, but it seems like we're, we're more closely related than, than than not. I think when we worked together, we would have been completely opposite. And the longer I've been sort of away, um, you know, I, I think I've kind of you've changed me. You, I've told you many times you've changed me. Uh, I think I, I see your point. Uh, I respect your point, and I and I'm coming closer to your point of view on this one. Wow, that's amazing. You know, that's that's uh. You know, that, that puts a smile on my face. And I'm glad that we're able to talk about these things, for real. One other key thing that came out of this, and I think we've talked about this before, is that it looks like uh, Apple is going to start using hardware security keys to launch part of their iMessage. They're calling it contact key verification. So watch out for that. You know, Hector and I have said, you know, uh, 18 months to 24 months, you know, the, the FIDO keys or the, the, the physical hard token keys are going to be the wave of the future um, to verify who you are and, and who you're talking to and verify yourself to the uh, to different sites. And it looks like Apple's taking a big step here on iPhones uh, with the contact key verification. That's fantastic. Um, you know, 
yeah, we had a great conversation about that not too long ago. I think that, um, you know, the FIDO Alliance and the concept of, of these FIDO keys or these security keys are awesome. I have them everywhere. I have them on almost every service. And I, I'm pretty excited about that. I know, Chris, at some point you'll, you'll probably be doing the same too if you haven't yet. Yeah. And you know what? I, at first I thought they were going to be a super like terrible inconvenience, but it's not even that bad. So um, I'm looking forward to more of this and less passwords. I think it's time for, I think we're, we're reaching the beginning of the end of passwords. Hopefully. I think so. I think it's, it's going to be slow though. Uh, I know mom Tarbell out there still loves her passwords. So it's going to be difficult for her to get a Fido key. Uh, but I still love you, mom, even though you might not use Fido. <laughs> Same. Hector, another great episode. Um, I appreciate the conversation. I've enjoyed it today. We uh, we mentioned that both our stories today were actually questions that came in that piqued our interest. Uh, and while we didn't exactly just address the questions, uh, the topics are exactly uh, what they were looking for. So, again, if you want to reach out to Hector and I and, and ask us a question, it's questions at hackerinthefed.com. And so it, it's, it's, it's good. It's good to receive, hear back from the people. Uh, let me go into that a little bit, Hector. We have gotten really, really good responses lately. We've gotten uh, a lot of questions. Yeah, it's fantastic. We're, uh, we're, our ratings are going up. Our number of listeners and downloads is skyrocketing. Um, so I, I really do appreciate the feedback from the listeners, from them writing in. Uh, we get a lot of uh, feedbacks at questions at hackerinthefed.com just saying, hey, guys, I don't have a question. Just love the show. And, and that, that feels really good. And, and when, when that comes in, I, you know, Hector and I you know, will reach back to as many people as possible uh, on that stuff. Um, but it, what comes with that, Hector, is things are starting to get mixed together a little bit. So we're getting a lot of people interested in sponsoring Hacker and the Fed. Yeah, so which is good. I mean, that, I mean, it's a natural evolution of any podcast. It sort of starts happening. So I, I set up another email account. So again, keep sending in your questions and contacting Hector and I at questions at hackerinthefed.com. But if you want to sponsor or, or talk to us about sponsoring the show or, or reach out to us at sponsor at hackerinthefed.com. You know, we certainly will uh, talk about it amongst ourselves and uh, and decide if that's something that's good for the show or not. Yeah, absolutely. Again, great episode, Hector. I really appreciate the conversation and look forward to talking to you next week. Likewise, my friend. Cheers. <laughs>